Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. We'll have it up on the screen, but I encourage you to have your own Bible in front of you. And I want to start with a question. Here's the question. Can someone who's been saved through faith in Jesus Christ end up not saved, end up not going to heaven, end up facing God's wrath forever? Can someone who's been saved by God's power through faith in Jesus Christ end up not saved? Is that possible? And my answer to that is no. And it's because of many scriptures, one of which is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, he who began a good work in you will perfect it, perfect it all the, all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. So he who began a good work in you is going to keep it going. He's going to protect that good work. He's going to strengthen that good work. He's going to keep that good work going all the way until Jesus Christ returns. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. So what that means is that if you're trusting Jesus Christ right now, then you can know for sure you've been saved. God's begun a good work in you. And because God's begun a good work in you, you can be absolutely confident he is going to keep that good work going. It's not up to your discipline and strength ultimately. He promises to do it. You're not strong enough to do it. He's strong enough to do it big time. And he promises he will do it, which means that if you're trusting Jesus Christ right now, you can be 100% certain that you will be in heaven. Be sure of that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and many other passages. Now, if that's true, which it is, I believe, then why do we find in the Bible places where God warns us, warns believers, that if we continue sinning, we will not be in heaven? Why do we find warnings in the Bible where God says to believers, if you continue in sin... You will not be saved. You will not enter heaven. You will face my judgment forever. Why do we find warnings if it's true that the good work God starts, God continues all the way to the end? And the reason I raise that question is because one of those warnings is found in our passage for today. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. So let's read what Paul says here, and then we'll dig in. Verse 3, Paul says, But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's a sobering passage. Now let's start by digging into what, what, sins, what sin does Paul warn us about in this passage. And look again at verse 3. Here's his list. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, when Paul says these must not be named among you, he's not saying you should never say the words. He's just simply, because Paul says the words right here. 
He's just simply saying they should never take place in the church body so that they would need to be discussed in any way. They should not be appearing in any form in the church body. That's what Paul is saying. So that means no believer should be involved in sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness. So what do each of those words mean? Let's start with sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia, and in, in that time, the word meant any sexual activity that took place outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Any sexual activity outside the context of marriage. Now, what would that include? First of all, let me just mention, I know cultures are different in terms of how openly these things are talked about. And we are a mixed cultural group here, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I, I need to lean into being a little bit more specific uh, than maybe some of your cultures are used to. And here's why. It's because sin hides behind generalities. And when we bring sin out into the light, sin's power is weakened and destroyed. So, let me mention what sexual immorality would include. It would include using pornography. It would include masturbation. Because Jesus said in verse five, don't look up, or Matthew 5, don't look upon a woman with lustful thoughts or look upon a man with lustful thoughts. That's always going on when masturbation is taking place. So pornography, masturbation. It would include any kind of sexual activity before marriage or outside of marriage, in, including homosexuality, which we'll talk about more in a, in a moment. So that's what the word porneia meant in Paul's time. And so when Paul says there should be no sexual immorality, he means that in a church body, in a church family, there should be no sexual activity going on outside the context of heterosexual man and woman marriage. That's what Paul is saying here. Now just some background, and that is, all through the Bible we read that sex is a, is a wonderful gift from God. Sex is not dirty. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a precious, beautiful gift that God gives for marriage between man and a woman because it, it bonds the couple together. It gives them pleasure in each other, and it makes babies. It's, it's an amazing thing. I mean, it's, it's just an incredible gift that God's given to us. And God is clear in the Bible, though, that I mean, the one who created sex, the one who designed sex, says that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. That's the setting in which it is to be enjoyed. No other setting is it beneficial to you. That's the only setting in which it, it works. It's, it's healthy. It's to be enjoyed. But I do need to talk about homosexual marriage. It's, it's a big, huge topic in my country, U.S., where I'm from. It's legal and it's growing in, in, in acceptance. And I know many of our countries, that's what, what's happening. And I want to just go into a little bit of detail on this so that you'll understand, because you'll hear different people saying, well, the Bible never says it's wrong. And, and I just want you to understand, I'm going to show you a couple passages just so that you have some background so that you have some foundation and ammunition here. And to help you. Because I would guess that some of you uh, struggle with same-sex attraction. And, and we love you. And we're glad you're here. And same-sex attraction is sin, just like gossip is sin, and anger is sin, impatience is sin, gluttony is sin. We're all sinners here. Let's get that straight, okay? Right? So one sin isn't like the worst sin. We're all sinners, and Jesus came to save sinners. That's the good news. So here we are, saved sinners. 
But let me give you some background as to why God would say homosexuality is wrong. And again, understand the one who made sex, the one who designed it, this was God's idea. He says that's not how sex is to be pursued. That's not healthy for you. That's not beneficial for you. That's not life-giving for you. It's against God's will. Here's some scriptures. Romans chapter 1. Paul says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural, function, natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Speaking of lesbian sex, they're women with women. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So notice God, the creator who gave us sex, says that homosexuality is not natural. It's not what God intended. It's not according to his will. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Very encouraging passage. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And now look at verse 11. And such were some of you. So some at the church in Corinth had been practicing homosexuality. Such were some of you, but... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Then one more scripture. Some people will say Jesus never talked about homosexuality, and he, he doesn't. And of course, homosexuality was not an issue amongst the Jewish people that Jesus was ministering to. It's not an issue. But Jesus does quote Genesis 2.24 numerous times showing that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So marriage, the only marriage Jesus ever talked about, the only marriage described in the Bible, is marriage between a man and a woman. Okay, now, again, so what if you deal with same-sex attraction so that if you're a man, you find yourself sexually attracted to men. Or if you're a woman, you find yourself sexually attracted to women. Well, like I said earlier, we are glad you are here. And we do love you. And, and I mean that with utmost seriousness. Those attractions are sinful, just like my tendency towards impatience is sinful. Just like somebody else's anger outburst this last week was sinful. Right? These, we all sin here in this room. There is nobody who is sinless here in this room. But, but Paul would say that same-sex attraction is, is sinful. But like I said, the good news is that Jesus came to save sinners. He died on the cross to pay for the sin, the guilt of sin, and to break the power of sin for everyone who would trust him. And so when you turn from your sin, say, Jesus, forgive me, change me, satisfy me, you will immediately be forgiven for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and his power will go to work and start to change you. 
Now, that does not mean that you will immediately stop having any same-sex desires. It might, and that does, does happen to people, but it might not. Just like somebody who's, who's been an alcoholic might instantly lose all desire for alcohol, but others who are saved do not, right? So sin as God instantly removes the sin? Sometimes not. He's loving, he's wise, okay? We're all battling sin up until heaven, and then free at last, free at last, okay? We're free at last. But if you still have the same-sex desires, God will, and this applies to those who have desires for the other sex too, okay, who are battling, not pursuing those in sinful ways, God will give you grace to resist them. He promises. He'll give you grace through the word of God, through prayer, through fellowship and encouragement. He will give you grace to resist him. And while you're resisting, he will so satisfy you in himself that you will be strengthened and established and able to fight. And I would encourage you, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual areas of sin you're dealing with, have somebody else be praying for you. Don't let the sin hide in the dark. Sin thrives in the dark. Bring it out into the light. Share it with somebody so they can be praying and encouraging you and loving you. You need that. We all need that. DNA groups, discipleship, nurture, accountability groups, a lot of that happens there. Okay, so that's sexual morality. Are, are we clear on what that means? It's any sexual activity outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That's the setting in which it takes place. So let me just be clear. Do not look at porn. Do not be involved in masturbation. Do not have sex before marriage. Do not have sex outside of marriage, and don't be involved in homosexuality, being gay, being lesbian, activity. Don't, don't do that. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, let me just mention a positive command. So that means married couples, we should then in our marriages pursue loving, joyful, serving sexual relations in our marriage. It'll bless your marriage, and it'll be a powerful weapon against temptation. And I want to encourage, because over the years, that area of, of your sexual relations in your marriage, that can become a point of frustration, a point of pain, a point of bitterness, and then you are setting yourself up for massive temptation if you find yourself in that place. So I would encourage you, and I know this may not be easy depending on how long it's been since you've really talked, I would encourage you, couples, Talk this week about your sexual relationship. Just talk and pray and, and, and pursue it lovingly, servingly, joyfully. It's a gift from God to, to bond you together, to give you pleasure in each other, to resist temptation. It's a gift from God. One other little just, just tip. Jan and I have found it very helpful to do what we call planned spontaneity. You know, spontaneity is a wonderful thing when it comes to sexual relations. Okay, it's, 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 spontaneity is great, but, but when you get busy, kids come, it's, it's nothing wrong with planning a little spontaneity, <laughs> scheduling a little spontaneity, like tomorrow night, okay, awesome, or, you know, whatever, right? So, all right, just, you know how that works, all right, so <laughs> say no more. Let's move on to impurity or covetousness, okay? <laughs> what is impurity and covetousness? I find it most helpful to ask, what is purity? Start there. What is purity? And 
the two commandments, right? Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, so you're, you're seeking your joy in Jesus more than anything. And then loving your neighbor as yourself, you're seeking your neighbor's joy in Jesus more than anything. That's purity in my mind. You're seeking your joy in Jesus above all else, and when you pursue relationships, it's to help other people come into the joy of knowing Jesus. That's the most loving thing you can do. So that's, that's purity. So what's impurity? Well, it's desiring anything more than God, more than Jesus, and pursuing relationships for any other higher reason than building up their joy in God. So let me give you some examples. And I want to do this because when we think about impurity or covetousness, we think about like Scrooge, Christmas Carol. You're familiar with that movie, okay? You know, he's just this miser and he's got the stacks of money and all. We think, well, that's, that's definitely covetousness, but we don't think about everything that can be covetous. That is covetousness, but... For example, there's nothing wrong with TV, but if your greatest joy and greatest excitement is this new TV show coming up, that's impurity. That's covetousness. Because you're loving something more than God. And that happens, doesn't it? It totally happens. But that's impurity. Nothing wrong with going stand-up paddling at Eastern Mangroves. I love stand-up paddling at Eastern Mangroves. But if I start being more excited about that, if that's what I'm living for, if my highest joy over these last two weeks was stand-up paddling at the mangroves, it was awesome. If that's my highest joy, there's a problem. There's covetousness and impurity in me. Because that's not going to satisfy me as much as God will. Right? He calls me to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I can go stand-up paddling with my Redeemer. Look at that fish. Thank you for that fish. Look at all these crabs over here. It's amazing. We saw flamingos once, okay? Anyway, enough about that. Nothing wrong with friends, having friends. But, but see, listen, if, if, if I'm pursuing friends for the sake of getting money out of them or, or getting some kind of networking connections, if that's my main reason, I mean, we know those things can happen, but if that's the main reason, or to get sexual favors from this person... Or if I'm pursuing these relationships to have my emotional needs met by these people or that person, that's covetousness. That's impurity because my love for them should be I'm serving them, pursuing them to, to build their joy in the Lord. That's purity in relationships. Okay, so that's examples of, of impurity. So how can you tell if you're involved with impurity or covetousness? It's because you're desiring something more than God and you're pursuing relationships for some other reasons besides building their joy in God. Either of those would be impurity or covetousness. So now with all that in mind, let's read verse 3 again. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So that's verse 3. Now, verse 4, Paul tells us, something else he's concerned about. Look at what he says. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, since Paul mentions sexual immorality in verse 3, I'm sure that part of what he has in mind under filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking would be obscenities, dirty jokes, joking about sex, those sorts of things. That's part of what he has in mind. But I think he also would include joking that's at the expense of another person. We know how that is, right? And I just want to, want to caution you. A lot of humor that happens is just this kind of subtle jab at each other. And we say, oh, it's harmless. They, they know I'm kidding. But I would just encourage you, I think that's dangerous. Because I think 
quite often, they don't just know you're kidding, although they'll be laughing along because their group is there. Um, I would just caution you about that. So, but what verse, three, what verse four is saying is we shouldn't joke about something sacred and holy like sex, and, and we shouldn't joke in a way that, that harms somebody else. So what should we do? We should focus on thanksgiving, Paul says, end of verse four. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. And I should say this last week as I was pondering this verse, God convicted me. He reminded me of a conversation I had just a little while ago where I was, I was joking, but the person I was joking about, it, it, they weren't there, but it didn't, it didn't lift them up. It, if anything, it, 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 uh, it made a little bit of fun of them. And, and God, it, God just really convicted me. And, and, and what, what the question was that I asked was, if I would have been full of humble thanksgiving to the Lord for all that I have in Christ at that moment, would I have joked in that way? And I don't think I would have. And so it's very easy to slip into it. Let's really be cautious about it. That's what Paul wants us to be alert to. So, so verses 3 and 4 are clear, right? No sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. That's what we should not do. But now the next question is, why not? And look at what Paul says in verse 5. Why should we avoid these sins? Notice the first word of verse 5. It's the word for, which could be translated because. This gives us the reason why we should not pursue these things. And look at the reason. For, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, let me just comment on the word idolater there. Idolatry certainly would include like going to some temple, some other religion, some temple, and bowing down before a statue and worshiping that statue as God. That would be idolatry. I think we're all clear on that. But what Paul says here is that that's not the only kind of idolatry there is. Covetousness is idolatry, where you are desiring something else more than God. It may not be some other statue. It may be money. That would be idolatry. Any number of things. So just understand, idolatry is much broader than we tend to think it is. Like if you're living for, some, for an upcoming vacation, it's like, this is going to be awesome. And, and that's what fuels you through your work week. And that's what helps you ride through the difficulties of living here in Abu Dhabi. And vacations come and this is going to be great. And if that's what's your greatest joy and excitement in these next few weeks, that's idolatry. That's covetousness. And besides, if, if you're setting your hope on your vacation, this is vacation time is coming up, so we talk about this. If you're setting your hope on your vacation, you're going to come back very discouraged right? So the way to not come back discouraged is set your hope on Christ, and I'm going to enjoy you as I'm lying on the beach. I'm going to enjoy you as we're hiking up in the mountains. I'm going to enjoy you as we're looking at the museums. I'm going to be enjoying you through all this. So you have Jesus at the beginning of the vacation, through the vacation, and on the end of the vacation, and you're good to go, okay? Just a little tip about vacations there. Now, <laughs> but why should we avoid these sins? Paul's very clear in verse 5. It's because everyone, he says, who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, does that include believers? The answer is yes, because this is the reason he gives to believers for why we shouldn't. And notice the word everyone in verse 5. Did you catch that? Underline it. 
Everyone. That's why Paul says everyone. He's including us. Everyone. So if any of us is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, then we do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, what, what does that mean, not to have an inheritance? What is the inheritance? It's heaven. Chapter 1, verse 13, Paul talks about that. It's, it's the everlasting, ever-increasing joy of knowing God in Christ. That's the inheritance. And if we, if we are sexually immoral, impure covetousness, we do not have the inheritance. Now, notice again, though, who it is that doesn't have the inheritance. Don't miss this. It's someone who is sexually immoral. Not, not who was sexually immoral. Very important difference. This is somebody who is sexually immoral, who is impure, or who is covetous. So this is referring to somebody who is right now pursuing sexual immorality. Maybe they're looking at porn, just part of their lifestyle. Just this is what they do. They go to church Friday. They love Jesus, they say, but they're pursuing porn. They might rationalize it and say, you know, I'm not hurting anybody, right? Um, sex is natural. You know, my, my wife, my husband isn't fulfilling me, whatever the rationalization might be, but it's somebody who is sexually immoral. Unless something changes, that person does not have an inheritance in heaven. That's what Paul is saying. Can you see that from this passage? So Paul is not talking about somebody who late at night, it's been a stressful day, getting some work done, work's done finally, and he's tempted because of just tiredness and whatever. He, he clicks on something he shouldn't be looking at at the computer, and then one thing leads to another, and there's sin there, and, and, and then he's convicted, falls to his knees, Jesus, forgive me, I'm so sorry. I hate that. Cleanse me, wash me clean. See, at that moment, that brother can be completely assured of forgiveness, inheritance is mine, Jesus is mine, he's going to help me, because he repented and he confessed. So this is the difference we're talking about here. Somebody who is sexually immoral or covetous or impure is pra continuing in this area of sin, practicing this area of sin, without repenting, without confessing, without battling, without fighting, they have no assurance that they have the inheritance because of this warning here. But if, if you've been involved in sexual sin this past week and God has convicted you of it and you have confessed it to him, you can have complete assurance that you have the inheritance. Do we understand that? Okay, let me just say that again. If somebody is continuing in sexual sin or in impurity or covetous with no repentance, no confession, they do not have assurance that they have the inheritance because of this warning. But if they have confessed their sin, if they have repented of their sin, if they put their trust in Jesus, help me overcome this, they can have complete assurance that they have the inheritance because of Jesus' death on the cross and forgiveness. That's what Paul is saying here in verse, in verse 5. Now, let me just clarify that does not mean that our repentance and confession earns salvation. We can't earn our salvation. But confession and repentance show that you have the genuine faith that connects you to Jesus who did earn your salvation. That's why confession 
and repentance are essential because they show that your faith is real. We are only saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way anybody gets saved. And if you are not confessing and repenting, you have no reason to think you have that faith. And if you are confessing and repenting, you have every reason to believe that you have that faith. And that's why you can be completely assured of salvation. That's how it works. By the way, I think somebody, let me just mention, somebody might have this question. It's connected, and that is, what if you die right before, wait, die, right, die right before you had a chance to confess a sin? Does that mean it's over for you? No, 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 it doesn't mean it's over for you. The moment you first put your trust in Jesus and confess your sins, all your sins are forgiven, past sins, present sins, and future sins, all forgiven at that moment. So if you die before you confess one sin, that sin was already forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross when you first put your trust in Christ. Very important. Now, that does not mean that confession is unimportant. It is important to assure us that we've been forgiven. Because when you sin, there's a, there's a cloud there between you and God. You're not sensing his love. You're not sensing his presence. When you confess, the cloud lifts. The love comes. You're assured. It's beautiful. So keep confessing your sin, but don't get into the trap of thinking, wow, if I like die before I confess my sin, then that's not how God operates. When you put your trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Past sins, present sins, and future sins. That's why we like to talk that way, because it helps us understand the gospel and the cross. Okay. So Paul is not talking about the person who sins and then confesses and repents, even if he then again sins and confesses and repents, and again sins and confesses and repents, and again sins and confesses and repents. Okay, that's not the person Paul's warning in verse 5. The person Paul's warning in verse 5 is the person who sins and rationalizes and sins and rationalizes and gets harder and harder and harder towards the Lord. And so if you know someone who's in that situation, pray about it. Go, go to them. Pray about it and then go to them. And humbly, lovingly, not accusingly, and, and, and ask questions rather than making statements, but God could use you to wake them up and bring them back. Okay? So Paul's not talking about somebody who sins and then confesses and repents. He's talking about somebody who sins without caring, without repentance, without confession, and that person has no assurance of receiving the inheritance. And unless something changes, Paul says they won't. And, and Paul wants to make sure we really get this. So he, he writes verse 6 as well. He says it again with different words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So there must, he must have heard about some other people in the city of Ephesus saying something different. He says, let nobody deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Sons of disobedience would be anybody who's disobeying in an ongoing way without confessing or repenting. So think about what it would mean to face the wrath of God, which you mentioned in verse 6. First of all, God is a God of amazing love and mercy and compassion, breathtaking, astonishing, really unbelievable love. Let's be clear. And God does not delight in wrath. He delights in mercy. He loves mercy. But he does have wrath. 
Here's a description in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 17. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Notice the Lamb has wrath, the face of him who is seated on the throne, that's God the Father, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Think about eternal wrath. Think about unending wrath. Think about the wrath from the God who's created everything, who's all-powerful and created everything. There's nothing more frightening than to think about that. And Paul, Paul wants us to tremble at these verses. Okay, but now, like I said at the beginning, this raises a question, right? How does this warning fit God's promise to bring each saved person to heaven? Because God promises that, right? Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will continue it, will perfect it all the way until Christ Jesus. He will do it. Everybody who God saves will end up in heaven. So how does this warning in Ephesians 5 fit that? Here's how it fits that. It's because one of the ways God keeps you is by giving these warnings to us. These warnings keep us on the road to heaven. So one way is by giving us these warnings. The second thing that he does is when he saves us, he changes our hearts so we pay heed to these warnings. So we tremble at these warnings. Now, where do I get that? Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40, one of my favorite verses. Look at what the prophet Jeremiah said back in the Old Testament. God is speaking through Jeremiah. God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. God has saved you. He's made an everlasting covenant. How long does an everlasting covenant last? Forever. And what is this everlasting covenant? He will not turn away from doing good to you. He will never punish you if you're trusting Christ, been saved through him. He will always only be doing good to you. Boy, that's carried us through some trials, and that's, that should carry you through any concern about not making it to heaven. He will never stop doing good to you. He will always only do good to you. By the way, that doesn't mean you face no trials, right? Trials are, are part of his goodness to us. But understand, he will never punish you because all the punishment was poured out upon Jesus. Forever, he's only going to be doing good to you. And one of the reasons he can promise that is because of the last line of this verse. And I, God says, will put the fear of me in their hearts so they, that they may not turn from me. So when God saves you, he changes your heart. He puts the fear of him in your heart. And that fear of him trembles at these warnings and makes you turn back, makes you confess, makes you repent, makes you battle the sin so you don't keep on sinning with rationalization and justification, willingly sinning with no repentance, no confession. That's impossible if God's put his fear in your heart. He will cause you to tremble. He will cause you to turn back. You will not continue on. He will bring you back. Now, an illustration I've used before, which helps me understand how 
the warnings fit with these promises, is to think about the road to heaven like a windy road going up a mountain, okay? And there are steep drop-offs on different sides of the road, where if, if you go over the road to that side, it's like, okay, it's, it's eternal destruction, okay? That's the temptation on either side. So here's, here's the windy road. Now, what has God done? It's like, if you're just driving up this windy road, who knows what's, you may not make it. So God says, they're, they're, they're all going to make it. They are all going to make it. And he puts up warning signs at each steep drop-off. Warning! Do not go past this point. Turn back now. Repent, confess, okay? At each of these stop drop-offs, there's these warning signs. That's one thing he does. And then the second thing he does is he changes our hearts so we pay heed to those warnings. We tremble at those warnings. We say, oh my, that's a warning sign. I don't want to drive any farther. I'm turning back. And that's how the, the warnings are true. If you continue sinning, you will not go to heaven. The warnings are true if... But God makes sure that for those he saved, that if never happens because he changes our hearts so we never pursue the if. We always pull back and stay on the road. doesn't mean we don't sin, but we repent, we confess, we come back. Does that make sense? So the warnings are true and the promises are true. So here's what this means. If right now you are confessing, repenting, saying, Jesus, forgive me, I trust you, look at what I did last night or yesterday, you can be 100% certain that you are going to be in heaven. Not only are you forgiven for that sin, you're going to be there. It is certain. Because he says, I've, you can tell, I've started a good work in you. You're repenting, that's a good work, and I'm going to keep that good work going all the way to heaven. You can be completely certain of heaven. Are we clear on that point, church? But if you are involved in sin, knowingly, without repentance, without confession. And you've somehow rationalized how you as a Christian can do that. And there's no repentance, there's no confession. You cannot be sure you're going to be in heaven. Because unless something changes, Paul would say, you won't be. Which would show you were never saved to begin with. Because if you've been saved, then God put the fear of you in his heart so that you're hearing these warnings and turning back. And I'm praying, I was praying last night that some of you maybe are trembling at a warning maybe for the first time ever. And that's a good thing. I don't like to make people tremble with warnings, but in, in this case, it might be a very good thing for you. And if you're trembling, Jesus is standing before you saying, come home, come home. I'll help you, I'll forgive you, I'll love you, I'll strengthen you, come home. And this is a good day for you. Okay, now... How do we fight sin then? So you're, you're dealing with sexual sin, possibly very common, huge battle. Oh, there's a quote I wanted to give you first from Tom Schreiner. Can we put that up? Just how the warnings and the promises fit. Here's what Tom Schreiner says. The warnings are the means God uses to preserve his own, and the warnings are always effective in the lives of the elect. So the warnings are how God keeps us going to heaven all the way until the end. The warnings are true. They're not contradictory. They're true, and that's how he keeps us. They're the warning signs on the road. Okay. Now, how can we stop pursuing these sins? Let me give you five steps. One, first, pray over these warnings until you, fear, until you feel the fear of God. Now, I was going to use an illustration about a two-by-four. What, what, in your cultures, a two-by-four is in America. It's like two, a, a, a 
piece of lumber that's two inches by four inches. What do you call it in... Anyway, think of a piece of lumber, okay? I was thinking a warning should be like a two-before whack on the side of the head, okay? It should wake you up. So put that in your own culture, okay? These warnings are to be like a wake-up call, like a bucket of cold water. What am I thinking, okay? That's what these warnings should do. And so if, if the starting point for me often is to open up the warning and just read it. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whack. Okay, what am I thinking? Right? That's how God wants these to work. So start there. Pray over the warning until you feel the fear of God. Then second, cry out to Jesus to forgive you and to help you. So look at the cross. Payment for all the guilt of your sin. Look at the resurrection. That's the power that will help you to overcome sin. And so look to Jesus and trust him. Trust Jesus. We don't need to overcome the sin first before we can be accepted, right? We come and get accepted first, and on that foundation, we overcome the sin. So important. You don't need to conquer the sin. Like, if I can go for a week or two without sinning in this area, then I'll be able to come back to Jesus. No! No, That's totally wrong. You will be in despair if you take that approach. You come to Jesus as you are still feeling that pull, I'm st- whatever. Jesus, look at me, help me, forgive me, change me. He's smiling, you're forgiven, he's starting to change you, it's happening. At that moment, you can be completely assured. Even though your heart is still like, ah, you can be assured, he's gonna help me, I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm, and on the basis of that forgiveness, on the basis of his love for you, then you fight. That's how it works. So that's the third step. Be assured he's forgiven you and will help you by faith alone. Fourth step. Pray over scriptures showing the all-satisfying worth of Jesus Christ. Here's what I read yesterday morning. John chapter 1, verse 14. You're familiar with this verse. It's, just, it's beautiful. And the word, speaking of Jesus, who in verse 1 was with God and who was God. The word, God, Jesus, second person of the Trinity, became flesh and dwelt among us. God has become a man. Wow. And we have seen his glory, his beauty, his majesty, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, you pray over a scripture like that, and then fifth, continue until you once again, you see and you feel the all-satisfying worth of Jesus. You're filled, you're satisfied, you're content. And when you're filled with Jesus, like the, the, the moldy orange in the back of the refrigerator will no longer be appealing to you when you understand there's a whole basket of fresh fruit there on the counter, okay? That's how you fight sin. Sin is the moldy orange in the back of the refrigerator. If you're hungry and that's all you see, you're gonna go for it, but you've got this whole fresh fruit basket here. Forget the moldy orange, right? But you got to see the fresh fruit basket. That's John 1.14 right there. Okay. Now let me tell you how Augustine experienced this. Who's heard of Augustine? St. Augustine. I don't like to use the word saint though because we're all saints. But anyway, he was a saint just like you are if you're trusting Jesus. St. Augustine. Here's how he experienced this. He was a North African church leader around 400 AD. Late 300s, early 400s. North African church leader. But before he was saved, he was in terrible bondage to sexual sin. He lived in Carthage, modern-day Tunisia. 
And he called Carthage a hissing cauldron of lust. That's how he described the city of Carthage. He was enslaved to sexual sin. But listen to what happened to him when he put his trust in Jesus. He wrote this in his, in his book called The Confessions. He said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Okay, those past joys, they're fruitless joys. There's, there's joy there, but it's fruitless. It's not satisfying. And he feared to lose them. But then he says, it was sweet to be rid of them. You drove me from, you drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. That's what Jesus will do. That's what he did for Augustine in 386 AD in Carthage, North Africa, and that's what he will do for you in May 2018 in Abu Dhabi. That's what he'll do for you. Let's stand and pray. Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us right now. I pray that you would cause those who need to this morning to tremble at ongoing sin they've been pursuing without confession, without repentance. Lord, I plead with you that you would give them the gift of trembling right now. Not because of what I've said, but because of what your word says. Give them the gift of trembling right now and help them see that they have no reason to be assured they're going to be in heaven. And bring them to, right now, Lord, to confession and to repentance, we pray. And Lord, for all of us, let us see more clearly the truth of the warnings that we would not play games, that we would not dabble, that we would not toy with sin, that we would slay sin, that we would battle sin. Lord, let us feel the, the seriousness of the warnings and then let us love the beauty of the promises that you who has started a good work in us will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. What mercy, what love. You keep us. You don't let us fall away. You bring us back. You are the Savior from start to finish. And we worship and praise you. In Jesus' name.